0: Welcome to week four of our talk on prayer at Exodus. We, have a, we, can, we can make any series last for like five or six weeks, including this one. Some of you are not getting enough prayer in your life. I picked up this this week. There's actually a magazine called Pray Magazine. For those of you who are in the advanced version of our topic who think that everything I'm saying is so elementary and it's just not enough for you because you're a prayer mongrel. You just have to eat up all the prayer you can. You can now subscribe to Prayer Magazine. If You want this? I'll give it to you.
1: So we don't have to pray. Or we can just subscribe to the magazine.
0: Actually, yeah, I think the magazine prays for you. You just read, and everything in it is a prayer. You know, so you can make useful time of any of the time you usually read magazines. You can like kind of pray anywhere, except while operating a motor vehicle. You'll have to you have to turn on like the fish and worship with them. You know, as you're going down the road. All right is it just me or is the fish like the same like five worship songs just done by 30 different groups? yeah, it is. You know, 30 different groups doing the same five worship songs. We're talking about prayer. We are going through the Lord's Prayer. Some of you who have been with us on this journey know why. Here's a quick review for some of you who are joining us. Here's what we've covered so far. Prayer is... Contrary to what most of us learn in the church, it's not just a discipline that we should be guilty about not doing. It's not something that you check off in the Christian life as you're walking on the treadmill trying to earn your grace. Prayer is a fundamental communication tool with our Father. First of all, it's our birthright as sons and daughters of the King. We've covered the verse that says, To all those who believed in Him, He gave the right to be called sons, daughters. So we now have a birthright. We also covered the verse that says that spirit that is given to us when we believe in Christ is the spirit of adoption that calls out Abba, Father. Another adoption word. We are becoming sons and daughters. The spirit lives within us. And it's that spirit that even allows us to communicate with the Father by calling him in a common name like Dad. Okay, We are adopted. We are in the family. It's a means of communicating. We've talked about that. You know what? Prayer should just be a matter of communication. It's a way of asking the Lord for what we need, and it's meant to be as natural as communication as anybody else that we're in relationship with. And I think that's what most of us as Christians, well, maybe we don't teach it this way, and that's why I'm teaching it this way. Because when I hear about prayer in church, or when people ask me about prayer, it's one of those things on the checklist. How's your spiritual life? Are you praying? Are you reading the Bible? It's like somebody's doing like a little like, audit. And prayer is much more natural than that. It's much more elemental. It's simply, are you having a communication with your Heavenly Father? Jesus knew we would have difficulty, so he gave us the Lord's Prayer as a model. And I want to emphasize that it's a model. It's not that he literally meant for us to pray the Lord's Prayer every single time, literally, although there's nothing wrong with doing that. But he also meant to say, when you pray, pray in this way. Giving us kind of a, here's an example of how you'd pray. Last week we talked about the first part of it. Anthony, if you can go to the next slide. We started talking about the beginning parts where we're talking about Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's kind of like our beginning point. You know, the first few words. And we covered last week what those words meant. We said last week that the first priority in prayer was glorification of the Father. This is not only the first priority of the Lord's Prayer, it's the first priority of all of our prayers. That... We're praying to our Father who art in heaven, distinct from any other person, obviously, and we're saying, hallowed be thy name. We covered in some depth last week reasons why his holiness is so important. That's the first priority. So for those who say, I don't know what I should be praying or if I'm praying the right thing, the first priority of prayer, if you do nothing else, is to get down on your hands and knees or stand if you prefer or do anything else you want or drive your car and proclaim the holiness of the Lord. We talked last week that he created angels in heaven as a separate class of creatures that do nothing but glorify his name in his throne room and call him holy. We as his creation should do the same. That's the first priority. Second priority we talked about last week was to pray for the kingdom to come. And even though those, thy kingdom come, those three little words sound kind of innocuous. They actually have some very intense meanings. We broke down the kingdom into the kingdom that's here and the kingdom that's yet to come. Basically, we're praying for the salvation of those around us to enter into the kingdom of grace while we're simultaneously praying for the next kingdom to literally come. So we're praying simultaneously for people to be saved And for God to be patient and graceful and merciful and to help us reach people who are unsaved, while at the same time we're praying that the whole thing just stop now and let's just get to heaven. And Jesus wanted us to yearn for those and almost maybe feel the tension that the time should be short. There shouldn't be much time, but God in his infinite patience is allowing time to stretch out so that none would suffer. The Bible says he's patient so that none would perish. But when we pray, thy kingdom come... There's intense meaning in saying, Lord, please, usher everyone into grace the way I have been saved. And at the same time, come now. Come today. Let's start heaven now. So, second point, if you don't know what to pray. First thing, pray for God's holiness and proclaim his holiness. The second thing is, pray for the salvation of those around you and pray that Christ come back today. Anticipate the kingdom. Love the kingdom to come. We said that was a natural segue to our series on heaven about how if you don't know what heaven's like, you can't really anticipate it. So if you're one of those people who's sitting here and you haven't listened to those CDs, pick them up because it's a good way to learn to yearn for heaven once you figure out what's over there. You end up liking it more. But that's Jesus' second commandment in prayer, yearn for the kingdom that's partly here on earth, that's partly to come. Okay? Tonight we're going to cover the third priority of prayer, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm trying to wrap into a few moments a very big topic. So tonight's going to kind of hopefully do a little bit more than skim the surface, but understand that I think we're limited, unless you want to be here for most of the night, on how much we can go into God's will. But Jesus' third priority in prayer is that we pray for God's will to be done. Simple words to say, but again, there's a huge implication. Just like when we pray, thy kingdom come, there's a lot of meaning in what he was telling us to pray. When we pray, thy will be done, it was more than just like a good place to put the rhyme. Okay? He was really trying to say, this is an important part. These words you're about to speak, understand what it is that you're about to say. Let's break down God's will. Next slide. I'm going to cover three aspects of God's will. God's will can be broken down in the following way. First, there's God's sovereign will. Second, God's moral will. And third, God's individual will for our lives. And the reason I'm breaking it down a little bit for you is because I know when we pray, thy will be done, most of us kind of glaze over and go, well, God's will will be done. I mean, that's just a given. So I'm not really sure repeating it does anything for me. I want to make it more personal tonight. I want to break it down to a little bit more of a you level, which is most Christians are walking around with this question in their head I don't know what God's will is for my life okay that's the question that a lot of Christians when you ask them like what would you like to know from God if you could know anything you know some of us would ask them a goober scientific question like how many days was the creation really exactly but most of us would say what is your will for my life I want to know can you give me a road map I mean can you break it down I'd like to follow it exactly and I'd like it to be pretty detailed All right. Let's we'll start off with God's sovereign will. Anybody know what that is? The will that is sovereign. Ah, it's a will that's sovereign. Good. Using the word to define itself. Perfect. A+. Plus. God's sovereign will says that God is sovereign over the entire world and that nothing outside of his will will take place. Now, the reason I said this is a big topic is because we could be here all night asking questions about does that mean that God creates evil? Does that mean that God wills bad thing to happen to people? Does that mean that God controls every single thing? Is that what you were going to ask?
1: No. <laughs> what were you going to ask? I was going to give you the explanation of what sovereign was. Give it to me. Sovereign is basically like he, he still oversees everything. Like he doesn't, like how you just said it, it doesn't go outside of his hands. Like, you know, kind of like how the end times, like the rapture, there's things that happen um, and there's things that lead up to his coming of Christ and there's things that in this earth, it's like his all knowing, all just, he knows what's going on.
0: He knows what's going on, all right. God's sovereignty implies a knowledge of what's going on. I think I'm going to go a step further. God's sovereignty implies or is actually demands that nothing happens that the Lord does not will in one way or another, okay? God even, God has to will it or allow it. Just like we see in the book of Job, where Satan comes to God and says, Let me do this to your servant Job. God has to even in a moment like that give permission or withdraw and allow that kind of thing to happen. All right. God's sovereignty implies that nothing that is not his will can take place. But there's a lot of people that are gonna wrestle with that. I'm gonna kind of leave that wrestling to our discussions tonight because we may go into a little bit deeper, but His sovereignty implies and demands that nothing happen that is not his will. So you cannot go outside the will of God. Angela?
1: That doesn't necessarily mean that he is right this moment directing everything. He sets things in motion, perhaps, like the, the rain cycle. <laughs> and, and even though he created it, I don't know if he blows the
0: cloud over here in this direction. Okay, so so let's so in the natural world, you're saying the laws of physics take place, right? I totally agree. Okay, so that's why I'm saying the sovereignty of God's will means that nothing can happen outside of His will, without His either willing it or allowing it. There's an allowance provision, and that's probably where most of the stuff we're used to operates. He's
1: saying that um, everything in Africa and nothing going down there is in God's will.
0: Yes, I'm saying it's within his sovereign will, meaning that he's not saying, I want people to starve, but that if it was not God's will to allow it, it could not occur. Because an understanding, or let me put it this way, and I'm wrestling with this myself even as I research this, but nothing can occur outside of it which leaves us wrestling with, well, what does it mean when he allows those things to happen? And that's why you can have, and we will have in our next talk on tough questions of the faith, huge areas of debate of why does God allow whatever, and you fill in the blank. Because the, to ask the question, how could God allow blank, implies that he has the power to prevent it, and he's clearly allowing it. Understanding God's sovereignty means that if God wanted to wipe out poverty tomorrow, he could. It'd just be done. It's not that God couldn't do it. In fact, God is so supreme, there's nothing he couldn't do. So when you look at a situation, you have to ask, why is that allowed? And that's a whole topic that we can go into. But I think the first for tonight's discussion, we just have to understand that if God wanted to do anything, he could do it. And if God did not want something to be there, it wouldn't be there. I'm not going to answer it tonight because I think we have to wrestle with it as a separate topic of why God either allows bad things, allows evil, allows Satan to fall, any of those like, things like why. But all I'm saying is when you ask the question, why does God allow, you're already recognizing that he had the power to eradicate it if he wanted to. Let's, let's, let's not go too deeply off that, okay? Because we've got a lot of other things I want to cover. That's the definition of his sovereign will. That's layer number one. Layer number two is God's moral will. What is God's moral will in our lives? We know from the scriptures, from his commandments, from Jesus' teachings, what his moral will is. Throughout the Bible, there's descriptions that say, this is what my will is for you, that you do these things. Okay, We have commandments, we have examples, we have teachings. Even promises and prophecies fall within God's moral will. My will for you is this, that, and blank. It could be will about, like we could think about things like prayer, because he's even saying, here, pray like this. It could be things about purity that we covered in our last series. Here's how I would want you to live. It could be from the teachings of someone like Paul. Here's what I think the church leader should be like. If you want to get married, for example, when I said it falls within moral will, the Bible is clear, marry someone who is a believer. So if you're searching the skies, Saying, who am I supposed to marry? Well, part of the answer's already been given. Maybe not the answer you're looking for, like a name with an address and a phone number. all right? But a, but part of the answer's already been given. You better be a believer. That's God's moral will. He's already given you directions in his word about what his will is for our lives. The way we're supposed to live, relate to one another, forgive one another, love one another, all those are within his moral will. Then the third level is, sometimes his will comes down to an individual will. That's the will that most of us wish we had all the time. Most of us wish we could pick up the phone and go, what do you want me to do today? Huh? Huh? Can you repeat that? Okay, got it. Hang up the phone, and then we go do that today. And then we think we're in his individual will. We wake up in the morning, we download our email, we get our assignment for the day, and then we're done. We know that we're in the will of God because we think of the will of God only in terms of, what is your will for my life? Individually I want to know me 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 part of it is because we're individualistic people maybe we always think that God should speak to us the way He spoke to Moses right that He should call us up for a little private meeting on the mountain and go here chisel some things down for me and when you're done you can go back down and look really special in front of all the people but I want you to notice something how many times does that really happen in people's lives even in the Bible that they were getting like daily things that they were supposed to do now some people more than others. But we tend to always want it to be individual. not saying it can't happen, but you need to recognize that God's will is not just, what do you want me to do? It's God's will is operating in the universe every moment. God has given us commandments in the Bible that are his will. My will for my people is that you live like this. And occasionally, his will will come to you in a word that says, do the following. Somebody have a Bible? Can we bring a Bible? All right. I want to contrast two things. I want to contrast how we discern His will in our individual lives. Because most of us want to take a quick little detour and just talk about that for a moment. I think we should. Because if we're going to pray for Thy will to be done, we should at least understand how it's going to happen. You want to open up Acts? Can we do Romans? Okay, I'll change a little talk around. Let's just do Romans. <laughs> Acts 21 8 to 14. This is, by the way, this is a story about Paul. And we're going to look at two different stories about Paul to ascertain different examples of how we look at God's individual will for our lives. Go ahead.
1: On the next day we left and came to Syria, And entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, The will of the Lord be done.
0: In this particular passage, you get this great scene where a prophecy is being told right in front of your eyes. Somebody walks in, walks up to you, unbuckles your belt, takes it out binds your feet and says, the person who owns this belt, this is what's going to happen to him. And you're thinking like, oh my God. Now that's the kind of biblical thing we like. We like things in the Bible where somebody just comes out and says, this is what's going to happen, and it happens to that person. And this way, of course, they're saying, oh Paul, don't go, don't go, this is going to happen to you. And he says, this is the will of the Lord, recognizing what? That his sovereign will is not going to change no matter what. That his moral will is that we follow him in everything and he's been led. But here, we get even down to the level of detail of God is saying clearly in no uncertain terms to Paul, my individual will for you, Paul, is that you go to Jerusalem and that you are bound and handed over. Who's narrating the story in Acts, by the way? Who's narrating this when he says, we went to Caesarea? Who's narrating that? Luke is there. So Luke's writing the story, right? Is it? God's will for Luke to go to Jerusalem? Is it God's will for Luke to be bound over and handed over? mm Could he extrapolate something from that? Probably not. Because here's the guy saying, Paul, this is your destiny. This is God's will for you. That's what we like. Go to, to Acts 16, and I want you to read verses 6-10, through because I want to contrast that kind of determination with a different one.
1: They pass through the... Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Mac-o-
0: Macedonia,
1: was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them.
0: So Paul's thinking, where do we go next? And what's his answer? Notice the way that this passage goes through. Just to show you, by the way, the reason I picked these two passages is that even Paul who most of us would think was probably in direct communication with God in some way or another, even Paul had to stop and conclude what the Holy Spirit was telling him. In this passage, they're trying to determine, where do we go? Are they bumbling idiots? What are they doing? They're trying to discern the Spirit. They first go one way and they feel prevented. Notice it doesn't say that the Holy Spirit spoke to them. It said they were prevented from going. They try to decide to go, maybe we'll go this way, and they feel like, no, the Spirit of Jesus says, don't go that way. So they decide, maybe we'll go this way. And while they're attempting to go this way, a dream says, come to Macedonia, which is even another way. Notice also in the passage, if you heard what Eric read carefully, they don't just automatically pack their bags and go to Macedonia. They conclude and the word actually, and I'm not the, the Greek scholar here, I read this in one of my research papers, that is used to, when it says they conclude that they're going to go to Macedonia, it's a tense of Greek that means basically, the, the, the word actually means to meet and confer. To sit down with other people, to meet and confer before they make a decision that they need to go to Macedonia. It isn't like, hey, we had the dream, we got to go. Because dreams can come from a multitude of sources, and even in dreams you have to test and discern what is being said. And after wrestling with the issue for a moment, they decide we're meant to go to Macedonia. Isn't that kind of the way our life is more, it seems? Does anybody call you up and bind you with a belt and say, this is what you're doing today? It happens, and it can happen, But we expect it to happen all the time. And I guess I wanted to take a quick detour and say, even in the Bible, there's examples of people who have to sit and discern. Yes, even Paul has to sit and figure out, what is the Spirit saying to me? Next slide. Ephesians 5.17 tells us not to be foolish, but to understand the will of the Lord. Great! How do I do that? Here's some verses from Proverbs about wisdom that I picked up in reading this. Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Notice there's like a repeating kind of theme here. The theme is you want to find out what's not foolish, what is supposed to happen. One of the best ways for us to do it as Christians trying to understand what is the will of God for my own life, I'm sorry to tell you it may not come in the phone call or in the email. It may not come in the guy binding you with the belt. It may come only if you spend time with people who are around you in counsel asking them the way that Paul was trying to do, figuring out where are we supposed to go next. Now praise God if he speaks into your life and gives you a direct word and says this is what I want you to do but it doesn't happen very often. One of the books I'm reading contains an example of a person who had tried like five or six jobs and was failing at all of them and concluded on his own that God must be calling him to ministry. And the reason this story struck me is I see this so much in the church today. People who are not making it in the real world somehow decide, that must mean that God wants me in ministry. I need to like somehow, they look for, for, I don't know, shelter, sanctuary within the walls of the church. As if ministry is a way not to be in the real world. I mean, first of all, I think that's nuts. Because if you're really in ministry, you should be on the front lines of the real world. But people who are not making it in the secular world, quote unquote, who say, well, it must be a call from God for me to be in ministry. And the person writing this book says, So I sat with this person and I counseled them about ministry. In fact, what we did was we turned to the parts of 1 Timothy where Paul is laying out what it means for a person to be a minister or a teacher or an elder. And we went through those qualifications over several weeks and we prayed over each one of them and we asked over and over, Are you this type of person? Do you have this kind of temperament? Do you have this skill? And after those weeks were over, the person concluded that they really didn't have any of those things. That they themselves had made a conclusion that maybe wasn't wrong to make, but after sitting in counsel with someone else, realized that maybe that wasn't God's will for their life. I think that if we learn nothing tonight, if you zoned out five minutes ago, listen to this one point. If you want to know the will of the Lord in your life, you need to seek counsel of other people. And we as Americans are so individualistic, we don't do it. How many friends do you know want to know who the Lord's will is that they marry, but when they make the decision, they make it by themselves? How many people do you know actually sit with a group of five or six Christians and say, I'm thinking this person is right for me. What do you think? And actually have the openness to hear the answer. It's a very hard thing to do. How about school decisions? We go like, Lord, where do you want me? What do you want me to be? What do you want me? Well, how about if you sit with four or five people and actually say, "Pray with me," but let's not stop there. Actually, challenge me, question me. You speak into me what you see from an outside perspective that maybe the four or five of us together could ascertain what God's will is for my life. Just like you're at a crossroads, do we go to Macedonia? Do we go back this way? Do we go to Asia? Where do we go? Maybe you won't get a dream, but at least have the same meeting, and see. So God's sovereign will, nothing's going to be outside of it. God's moral will. He's already given us direction for everyday life, so if you receive no other direction, you should follow that. Then God's individual will. Now I'll tell you that in my life, there have been things that I've known for sure were, were God's individual will for me. But I could probably count them on one hand. And I feel even lucky that I could count them on one hand. Because if you look at all the people in the Bible, they had leaders, and, and, and God spoke to a few people in that direct way. Maybe God spoke to me once or twice or three times directly in that way. And I feel lucky just to even have those. The rest of the time, you've got to kind of be thinking, all right, I've got to be moving with his moral will. It's in the Bible. There's so many things that are in there that tell us what to do. Thy will be done. What are we praying when we say that it be done? We're praying for the following things. One, we're recognizing that God's will is going to be done, whether we want it to be done or not. So when we actually speak the words, Thy will be done, we're saying it's going to happen. And we're giving recognition to His sovereignty. Nothing outside your will will take place. Thy will will be done. Second, we're giving thanks to God regardless of what is done. That's a hard part. But we're saying, thy will be done, and we're accepting it, giving thanks for it, and also, in the last one, learning to be pleased with God's will. We know the example of Job. We keep using it over and over in the church because we're shocked that a guy could go through so much and still not sin by cursing God's name or anything. He just is so pleased to allow the Lord to continue to do this. Now, he cries out, he wrestles with it, but in the end, he recognizes God's sovereignty. That God can do with him what he pleases. I picked out 1 Samuel 3, 10-18, which I'll briefly read. Just so you get a little bit of a context, just to understand God's will. In the Old Testament, there's the priest Eli and Samuel, even as a youngster, is prophesying to him. Well, actually, God didn't intend this prophecy to land in Eli's ears. He gave it to Samuel by himself. This is what the Lord said. The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. The Lord's saying to Samuel, I'm about to do something so big everyone's going to be talking about this because it's going to happen to one of God's own priests. In that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house. From beginning to end, for I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew, because his sons brought a curse upon themselves and he did not rebuke them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. The Lord is telling Samuel, I'm about to do something to that guy's house and it will visit him in terrible ways. Samuel receives this prophecy and shortly thereafter Eli begs him to say, the Lord has spoken to you. Tell me what the Lord said. And Samuel's a little hesitant because he knows this is going to be a disturbing word for anyone to hear. That basically the Lord has said, I'm coming after that guy. But Samuel, because he loves Eli, tells him, he says, this is what the Lord told me. And what is Eli's response? Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. I mean, basically, he's hearing the worst news of his life. Like, your house is about to be devastated. The Lord is coming after you. His response is, he's the sovereign Lord. If that's what pleases him, then let it be done to my house. How many of us take God's will in that way to actually say, your will be done? Do we want it to be done when it's good for us? I'm in that camp. I have a hard time praying for things to be done when I don't want them to happen. But by uttering the words, Thy will be done, we're asking for it, whatever it is. It's like whatever is behind that door, you want it? Yes. You don't even know what it is. I know, but I want it. Because the Lord's will is that I have it, that it be done. Whatever it is, good, bad, I'm going to be pleased, I'm going to be thankful, because it's the Lord. Now let me give you a couple cautions if you go to the next slide. First of all, It is permissible to pray against the will of the Lord. It is permissible, I said. not going to work very much, but it's permissible and even healthy to pray. I mean, for example, you can pray, Lord, please heal this person. And maybe the Lord's will is that they're not going to be healed. Half the time we don't know. So it's a good idea to pray anyways. Okay? But even if you did know... The Bible gives us clues that even in moments where we know, we can still ask the Lord anyways. I can think of two right off the top of my head. One is, Jesus told us to be like the widow who bugged the judge so much that he finally gave her what she wanted just to make her go away. Now, that's not a promise that God will do that, and that's not a promise that God will change his mind, but God wanted us to pray like that woman who was so incessant that the judge finally got sick of her and just gave her what she wanted just to make her go away. The second example is one we used last week where David hears a horrible condemnation from Nathan for what he has done with Bathsheba. But he prays to the Lord and the Lord at least partially changes his mind. He's not going to kill David after all. Maybe he's not going to do that, but he is going to let his son die. It's kind of like a, all right, we'll go halfway on it. So when I say the Lord's will will be done no matter what, that's true, but that doesn't mean that we can't pray to even have him change his mind. And like I said, most of the time we don't know what his mind is, so we might as well pray. Second of all, it's not an excuse not to pray at all. Because if you're like, oh, the Lord's will is going to be done, what does it matter if I weigh in on it? He still wants us to pray that his will be done because he wants us to love it, accept it, be pleased by it. Third, there's nothing easy about the Lord's will. If the Lord's will is that somebody in your life die prematurely, There's nothing easy about that. You still need to be thankful that it's the Lord's will, maybe pleased in a weird sense, but I'm not implying that we should be all like, yeah! And finally, I think the real trick is to try to figure out when we're in God's moral will and when he has an individual will for our lives. That's the last caution I have. Too many of us think that he's going to speak all the time in individual things, and unless we get specific direction, that we're aimless. Let me state it another way. I can't tell you the number of Christians I know who think if I just knew what the Lord's will for my life is, I would do it. It's like, what are you talking about? How about his moral will? He's got enough commandments in the Bible for you to, like, you couldn't do all of those in your whole lifetime. Like, we know one of them is like, go to the ends of the earth and preach his gospel. Like, do that for a few years if you don't know what else to do. There are so many elements of God's will that we ignore that we're always waiting to get to the last level, and I just want to make that as a caution If you're one of those people who's walking around going, I don't know what the Lord's will is for my life, just look at the moral will and look at the sovereign will a little bit more carefully. Because you're expecting the individual will to happen on a daily basis or an annual basis or even every 10 years of your life, and that sometimes may not happen. To some people that may happen a lot, and to you it may just be that God's like saying, Hey, I've given you enough commandments to follow, like preach the gospel, do this, love your brother, all those kind of things, do those things, and you're doing my will.
1: You think that people pray for God's will to happen because they want, you know, they want to feel like they're a disciple. They want to feel like, oh, God wants me to go here. You know, when really God just cares about your heart and he cares about, hey, you know what? No matter what you do in all things, give praise and all things do good. You know,
0: I think there's two wise things packed into that one comment. One is I think God ultimately cares more about who we are in relationship to him than what we're doing. We have an American work ethic. We're always trying to do, 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 do. Like, we're trying to earn back the grace that he gave us. Okay. So, yes, I think he cares more about the state of your heart and your relationship with him than he cares about what you're constantly doing. So for half the people who are looking for his will, it's because they're looking for their next assignment. And, yes, I also agree with the other part of your statement, that for a lot of us... We want to feel important or used by God so that we're looking for a specific will because we can't imagine that He doesn't have one for us. And that's one that I don't know how to wrestle with or grapple with, except that I look at the Bible and I see millions of Israelites and one Moses and one Aaron. I see one Joshua. I see one Isaiah. I see one Jeremiah. I don't see like, I see certain people that say, I was called by God to be an apostle, and only a few of them were. And so even in the Bible, you know, we all have this like, well, we're all going to be on an equal level of how much he uses. And it's just not true. There are some people he uses more than others, you know. I mean, could you name all 12 disciples? I mean, there are some of those guys that are out there like, what, who's that guy? You know, wasn't Bartholomew or whatever? We're like, what was his quote in the Bible? Like, what did he ever say? Right. I mean, four guys wrote Gospels. None of them ever thought to quote one thing that Bartholomew said. I mean, he did nothing important. But yeah, so I I think there is a texture to that in our Christian lives, especially as Americans, that we do believe that we are important enough to receive direct assignments from the Lord, and that's just the way that we look. You know, on that point, I was really humbled this week. I was reading a story about a couple, two doctors. They went to Africa this four or five years ago. They just felt called to go to Africa. They had medical loans. They found an organization that would pay for their loans and would send them to Africa. And there were two doctors that they were replacing. They were retiring, and there was nobody to run this clinic, and it was in... It was in Kenya, I believe. Nigeria, I'm sorry, it's in Nigeria. And this clinic is right on the border of two mega states of tribes. One that's predominantly Christian, the other one that's predominantly Muslim. And there is, we're talking about like 27 million people and like 20 million people. And they're like a warring tribe. They literally would kill each other as often as possible. And this medical clinic was on the border. Serving mostly the Christian population, but anybody else who would get there. And they was going to shut down because there were no Christians and no doctors to run it. So these two heard about it. Within two weeks, they made a decision they were going. They jumped on a plane, and they just showed up. And they began to work in this hospital. And this article goes on to detail the miracles that occurred in the hospital. The miracle healings, the miracle political climate that took place to the point where they literally met the king of the warring tribe because they saved his son through some miracle. And he declared them actually to be kings of his own kingdom. It's a strange story. But he ushered in Christianity and wanted it taught to all his people. When I was reading this article, I was thinking like, why do I think God has anything special for me to do? I mean, compared to these people, like, what's my life going to amount to? You know, I mean, just look at these two people, like what God has used them to do. Like, these are the kind of people that are moving into the mansions in heaven, and I'm going to be living in that, like, tent, right? Because I think of all the things and all the things that are going on in in my life, like, what have I done with my life compared to what those two people have done and accomplished? I mean, they're literally moving millions of people closer to Christ. And they're preaching the gospel openly, and people are accepting it, and all these miracles are going on, and I'm thinking to myself, like, I can barely put two words together on a Sunday night. Those kind of things... Our personal wrestlings that people have with the Lord. And I guess I could say to you is, as I wrestle with them, my conclusion was this week that, yeah, you know what? The Lord is going to use other people more mightily than he's going to use me. Maybe it's the state of my heart. Maybe he knows my limitations. Maybe his will is something I don't always understand. But part of that, my will be done, is accepting my lot and then turning to someone else and saying, I'm going to pray that they increase even further what they're doing even if I never get to participate in it, even if my only job is to pray, thy will be done, and it includes them in some sort of like catch-all phrase. Let's get through this and finish. On earth as it is in heaven, the last parts of the phrase. On earth actually has a lot of different meanings. To the early church, it was very important. There's been a lot of debate throughout our church history about can you pray for people when they're dead, after they're done? I mean, what are we doing here? Jesus is saying, pray for the will of the Lord to be done for those who are on earth. Pray for it now. Whether that's they be saved through grace, whether that's they saved from illness, whatever the Lord's will is, we're praying for it to happen here on earth and as it is in heaven. As it is in heaven literally means similar to the way that the Lord's will is done in heaven. What we're praying for is another parallel of your kingdom come. We know that in heaven the Lord's will is done every moment. There is no one that doesn't do the Lord's will in heaven. And everyone is harmonious and happy in heaven. We're going to love doing the Lord's will. There will be no sorrow, no no weeping, no sin. We're just going to love doing the Lord's will. And Jesus is saying, pray that that would happen on earth. Pray for the people who are on earth, but pray also that they would have the Lord's will be done as if it were heaven here on earth. We're never going to have heaven on earth. In fact, it's going to get worse and worse and worse, is what he told us, until the point where we're crying out for heaven. But nonetheless, we are not prohibited from praying, Lord, may your will be done here on earth the way it is always done in heaven. Maybe that will mean that more people will be saved, more people will do his moral will, if nothing else. But we're adding power to the words, your will be done, the way it's done in heaven. Meaning, without exception, every day, all the time. But we'd like it done here on earth, if at all possible. Lord, hear our prayers, what we're saying. These simple words that he asks us to pray and repeat, it's just an outline. Each little word is packed with so much meaning. And he's giving us the pattern so I'm hoping, like I said, that number one, if you heard nothing else, you at least heard to sit and counsel with other people when you're trying to figure out the Lord's will. And here's number two. If you're going to pray something, go through the order. It's really simple. We like formulas. We like one, two, threes, you know. So here's a one, two, three. Pray for the holiness of the Lord. Pray for his kingdom, the one here on earth and the one to come. And pray for his will in all those different aspects. For his sovereign will that we accept it for His moral will that we might search it out and do it, and that other people might do the same, and even for His individual will, whether it's played out in our life or somebody else's. And maybe He will play it out in your life. Maybe He will wake you up, and somebody will be standing at your bedside with a belt tying your feet, you know, and saying, this is my will for you, listen to me. I mean, we could be so lucky to have that happen. Let's pray. Lord, for me, I've been in awe in studying Your prayer that you gave to us, which is really more of a disciple's prayer maybe than it is the Lord's prayer, because you meant your followers to pray it. I've just been in awe at all the ways that it can be unpacked, all the different meanings and and all the different issues that come out of just these simple words, Lord. Maybe that shouldn't surprise us, knowing you are the all-knowing and the all-powerful, that there is so much wisdom in the words that you chose to give us. But Lord, most of my life, I've just kind of meaninglessly mumbled these words. And now I can finally appreciate a little bit more what you packed in there. Lord, we should take time to pray for your holiness right now. To proclaim you as the most high and the glorious Lord. We sang tonight Father of Lights again, and I love that just because you are the Father of glory. The light, Lord. You are the light. You are holy. And Lord, we need to also pray for your kingdom to come. First and foremost, for those people who have yet to know you, that they would be brought into your kingdom, Lord, before it's too late. And at the same time, Lord, to yearn for your kingdom, that it come today, that it comes soon, Lord, that you do the things that you promised, and that you do them in our presence so that we could finally be with you in heaven and give up this sinful love for this earth. And tonight, Lord, having understood what it means for your will to be done, we thank you for your will. Lord, I don't understand why half the things happen that happen, and maybe they're not meant for me to understand, but Lord, I know that all things happen through you. And Lord, I know that in our lives we haven't faced so many disasters yet, in our own personal lives But Lord, even if they were to come, I pray that you would give us the spirit to stand up and be okay with whatever you would bring into our lives. That like Job, no matter what rain would fall, that we would still stand and say, your will be done. Or like the priest Eli, Lord, we would stand up and hear the most devastating words that the Lord himself was going to wreck our home and that we would still say, that's fine, it's the Lord's will, let him do it. And I pray that we would have that kind of acceptance of your will. And Lord, yes, I pray once in a while that we would have that, that, that moment where you would show us your individual will, where we would know without a doubt that this is exactly what you want us to do. And Lord, while most of us expect that to happen, through some sort of magic or Ouija board moment, maybe, Lord, we need to learn the discipline of just getting together with other believers and asking them to help us discern your will. Sitting and listening to the counsel of others who are wise And, Lord, also being content when there is no answer, when there is no individual will for you. Sometimes, Lord, as we said tonight, you may have no preference. You just, in the end, Lord, want our obedience and our faithfulness and our love. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.